Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. We are Thanks. in Mark. As you know, if you want to turn to chapter 7, we're going to be teaching, or I'll be teaching today from 24 through 30. Um, but before I do that, let me let me go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this day and for the opportunity that we have to come into your house, to hear your word, to fellowship with other believers, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to give and to praise your holy name through song, God. We just we just thank you for the opportunities that we've been given. God, we may we never take them for granted. God, I ask, Heavenly Father, that you be with us. Now, I know your word says, Lord, that you're omnipresent, that you're always with us. But God, I ask for your manifest presence amongst us. God, the, the revealed understanding of who you are be amongst us. God, and I ask that you give us wisdom and revelation to be able to do that. And I thank you for the people that were willing to come tonight. I ask that you bless the hearer. And God, we, we praise you. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to teach, like I said, out of chapter 7. Last week we talked out of chapter 6, and we're doing one teaching from each chapter for a total of 16 weeks. And so far it's going pretty good, or I guess it's going good. Y'all haven't thrown a Bible at me, called me a heretic, and asked me to leave yet, so I'm going to drive on. Um, last week we talked about the dangers of familiarity. And quite honestly, I, I find myself uh, struggling there. I become familiar with people and I allow boundaries that should otherwise exist to diminish, um, causing harm to myself and to the people around me. And so sometimes we need to realize that boundaries and familiarity, boundaries are necessary, familiarity is dangerous. Amen? And so some people think that's hurtful to set boundaries, but it's not. It, it puts us in a place to be able to receive from those God has established as authorities over us. And, and the Word of God, because we get so familiar with the Word of God, as you know, that we stop paying attention to it. We forget, or don't forget, we just read it. We, I've read that a thousand times. It's, I know all there is to know, and then I miss the nuance of what God's actually trying to speak to me right then. Uh, and as we know, it's a breathing, living document. And so we can't change the truth, but the way that truth speaks to us in our circumstance consistently changes. And so... We talked about that last week. I'm not going to regurgitate that whole lesson. Um, I am going to teach a lesson, though, titled, not strangely enough, it's just how the Holy Spirit works. We ended our worship set on, Great is Your Faithfulness. And then Pastor Leonard came up and said, um, first words out of his mouth, God, thank you for being so faithful. And indeed, God is faithful. Um, but today I want to talk to you about that the title of the lesson is that Jesus rewards faith. So not only is Jesus faithful, Jesus always been faithful. He can't be anything else but faithful to who he is and what he says. He rewards the faithfulness and our faith. Amen? And so I just, I know that's a small thing, but I love it when the worship lines up with the prayer, the prayer lines up with the word, and it's just just God showing out, and I appreciate that. I hope you all do too. Um, so we're going to talk about that. Jesus rewards faith. But before I do, I want to I take a second and talk to you 
to or encourage you to remember that Mark is an evangelist's gospel. It's intended that it was written for the purposes of showing the Gentiles that they were part of the covenant too through Christ Jesus. And so that's the reason why, if it, and I love how direct it is, it's not, it's not incredibly spiritual like John. It doesn't make references like Matthew because Matthew was talking to the Jews. That It doesn't say stuff like, for it was written, because those people wouldn't have known what was written. He's specifically talking to people who are Gentile converts or hoping to create Gentile converts. And so first eight chapters of Mark are, according even to this um, graphic, is to identify who Jesus is. And we've talked greatly over the last eight chapters and will continue to talk about who Jesus is, his identity. But then in chapter 9 through 16, legitimately cutting the work in half, it shows his mission. So because of who he is, this is the mission he accomplished. And so Mark is doing this. But the question is, why does he have to do it? Why, why does he think it necessary to do this? Because the Jews didn't get it done. And that sounds very harsh, but that's the truth. The Jews were intended to be the light unto the world. They were supposed to be the priest nation to the rest of the world so that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah might be recognized, acknowledged, and worshiped first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. I can prove this to you in Scripture. Isaiah 49, 6 says, he says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to rise up, raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation, that's a salvation through the Messiah, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's always intended to be Jew first, and through the Jews pointing of us towards the Messiah that we might also know. It's the reason why Romans 3.16, we quote the first half of it all the time. I think I said 3.16, I mean one sixteen. that says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? The power of salvation to who? to the Jew first and to the Gentile or the Greek, depending on which translation you listen to. And so it was supposed to be to the Jew first through the Jew revelation of the Messiah to the rest of the world. But the Jews, as you can, as you know, dropped the ball. I know that's very layman language, but they dropped the ball. They chose exclusivity instead of inclusivity. They decided to robe themselves in their own righteousness and forsake that which should have had they studied the way that they should have. They had the comprehension to understand the scriptures as well as they believe they did to recognize the Messiah. Amen? And so <clears throat> they chose exclusivity instead of inclusivity. Where they failed, though, praise God, the Messiah would triumph. Jesus would triumph. And so that's what I want to talk about today. Through God's offer of salvation extends to every person, and it does, Jew and Gentile, it extends itself through the Messiah by faith. Ephesians 2.8 tells us that we're saved by grace through what? Faith. We can't add anything to our salvation. This isn't necessarily part of the lesson, but it's a found, necessary foundational piece 
that I can't add anything. It's the whole reason Paul wrote Galatians in the first place, because the Jews were trying to add something to salvation. They were saying, hey, in order to be a Christian, you first have to be a Jew, and in order to be a Jew, you have to be circumcised, and you have to do this and that. And Paul wrote Galatians to say, Jesus is enough, man. What I need you to do is just understand that Jesus is enough. Jesus atoned for you, which means he was both the substitutional atonement for you and the penal atonement for you, which means he took your place in the beating that you deserved, in the wrath that was poured out. He took upon himself so that you didn't have to, and in so doing, paid your debt, justified you, and redeemed you back from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Can we get an amen on that? And let me tell you, you didn't add anything to that. You can't add anything to that. And if you thought, if for a second you thought you could, trust me, there were people thousands of years before us, smarter than us, that would have figured out a way to do it for themselves and haven't yet anyway. So I could tell you with confidence, we can't add anything to what Jesus did. Except, except what Jesus gave us in faith. We have to be a faith filled, faithful people because Jesus rewards faith. Now, let me talk about this text. Everybody with me so far? All right. Y'all pretty smart crowd. I figured you would be. Verse 24. I'm going to talk about the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre, Tyre, Tyree, I don't know. And when he had entered a house, He wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile. Everybody go, no, don't do that. I'm just playing. So the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. That's an even bigger gasp, just so you know. I'll get to that in a minute. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was trying, and he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed the demon having left. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? Amen. It's three points I want to make today if you're taking notes. And the first one is this. Jesus doesn't hide from the faithful seeker. Jesus doesn't hide from the faithful seeker. Verse 24 and 25 of the text I just read you says, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered the house... He went. He wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. I want to start this lesson by telling you, Jesus does reveal himself to us. Jesus was completely God and completely human at the same time. He would have been exhausted. At this point in the ministry, what we've learned just out of the book of Mark is that he would have traveled all over the region. He would have gone across the sea several times. He would have ministered to thousands upon thousands. He would have been totally consumed day and night with 
prayer and ministry and meeting the needs of the people and doing all the stuff that God would do if he manifested himself physically on earth. But he did it in the flesh. I've been to Israel. I don't know if you've ever been to Israel, but in the flesh before cars, he had to walk up and down all of those mountains, through those rocks, through those boulders, through that sand, from city to city for the sake of ministering to other people. Jesus in his flesh would have been exhausted. And so in his physical exhaustion, he, he decides to go to Tyre, which is, um, well, that's not relevant where it is necessarily geographically, but it was a, he had to travel to get there. In his flesh, he was tired but the thing I want to point out to you is that he wasn't just 100% flesh. He was 100% God. And as 100% God, he's not bound by time. So even in his tired flesh, he would have known in his godliness that he was going to encounter this woman. And so he went to minister to this woman, knowing that this woman would need to be ministered to. What's the point in all that? This region that he went to wasn't a Jewish region. It wasn't where a Jew would go to rest. And here's why I think, I can't confirm this, but knowing what I know of the character of Jesus through the study and the reading of God's Word, he went not to a Jewish region to find rest where he would have been surrounded by people that he knew and that loved him. He decided to go a Gentile region because if you're going to reach people that don't know Jesus, you got to go where there are people that don't know Jesus. And so, as physically exhausted as he was, he knew he was there for a reason. He didn't go there to hide himself. He was still God. I need you to understand that. He was still God and knew what he was doing, who he would encounter, and what he would accomplish in the area of in, in this area of Tyre or Tyre. I want you to have comfort in that, but I also want you to be challenged in that. Not only is God capable, desires to take care of you, he reached out and took care of you when you didn't know him. The Bible says that he proved his love for us while we were still sinners by sending his son, Christ Jesus, to us. And the challenge is, that's the comfort, the challenge is that we're obligated to do the same thing. Who are we to hide Jesus from the people we know? I hear people say all the time, and I'm not going there. They support so-and-so. Or they do such and such. Can I tell you, I believe boycotting places because you're a Christian is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Jesus didn't boycott places because he was God. He went and was the light in those places. It makes people uncomfortable when I say this, but I go to Starbucks a couple times a week because when I'm there, I open my Bible and I do my Bible study. And somebody in that place needs to see somebody reading the word. And almost every time I go in there, I get an opportunity to meet someone and pray with them. Because in that dark place, there's a light. You can't make a room more light by taking the light out of it. It just doesn't work that way. Amen? So since he doesn't hide himself from us, we shouldn't hide ourselves from him. But that's not really the point I want to make today. 
Well, the point I want to make right now in regard to the fact that he doesn't hide from the faith-filled seeker is that the faith-filled seeker has to have the right disposition. It's, it says this. In verse 25, I'm sorry, and fell at his feet. You want to receive from God? It's time to fall at his feet. I've never received anything from anyone with a closed hand. It's impossible. Whatever it is I'm trying to receive, it's going to roll out of a closed fist. But someone who falls at the feet of God literally submits themselves completely, physically, emotionally, spiritually at the feet of God and says, I can't accomplish this whatever it is. I don't have the ability, the strength, the know-how. I don't have anything to accomplish what it is that I know you expect of me. And so I humbly submit myself to you knowing that I can't meet my own need and that you as God are capable of meeting my need. That's what this Syrophoenician woman's saying. She said, my child's got a demon in her, and I can't fix it. You don't think this woman, before Jesus showed up, I don't know how old her daughter is, but you don't think this woman tried everything? If my daughter was struck down or diseased or sick or whatever, I would literally pour every resource I had into solving that problem. I'm absolutely certain that she did the same thing until she finally realized at some point through revelation or probably reputation of Jesus that this was the answer. But she couldn't receive anything from him if she wasn't willing to come in the right position. We need to get to a place where we say, God, I can't do this by myself. I, I know you're not hiding from me. I know you've accomplished everything to give me the boldness and the confidence to come into your throne room of grace expecting to receive mercy in my time of need. Will you help me and believe in faith that he will? Because he will. Isn't that crazy? Because he will. Which brings me to my second point. Jesus doesn't condemn the faith field. In prostrating herself, she learned that lesson, the lesson that we should all learn. That when we acknowledge him, when we say, I am so desperately in need that I can't do it without you, that I seek him with all my heart, according to Jeremiah, he will reveal himself to me. When I get to that place, the truth is Jesus doesn't condemn me. Jesus doesn't condemn the faith field. I'm going to say that again because some of y'all walking around here condemning yourself when Jesus has no condemnation for you. Jesus does not condemn the faith-filled seeker. Man, I want us to grab a hold of this. If the church could get a hold of the identity that they have, if we could understand who God is, what he did, how he did it, so that we could have the confidence and the boldness to walk into his presence expecting to receive. I just used that text out of Hebrews a few minutes ago. But it's so true. Like it's, if there's anything I want for the church, I, I want the church to realize God doesn't condemn you. God convicts you. Yeah, I've, I've said this before. I'll say it a thousand times before I'm done, I hope. 
condemnation is the enemy's counterfeit for conviction. Condemnation says you'll never get it right. Conviction says Jesus already got it right. Just submit. The Bible says this in Romans 8.1. For, for now there is no condemnation in who? In Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, that's applicable to you. And, and you're not going to understand how significant that is because we're all, we're pressing on our on ourselves because of the sin that we're in. Everybody knows the sin they're in, right? That should be a title of a sermon, the sin I'm in. Everybody knows the sin that you're in and you're, you're raking yourself over the coals about it instead of just going to the one that can take that from you, that can forgive you of that. How, how significant is that? Read chapter 7 of Romans, I dare you. Because 8-1 didn't happen by accident. It's not an anomaly. It does, it's not a parenthetical statement. It's literally the thought moving from chapter 7 into chapter 8 because it was all one letter. We made it its own chapter. So what, what preceded that? Paul saying, man, I ain't getting this right. Paul, throughout all of Romans 7, says, I'm not getting this right. Everything I know I should do, I'm not doing. Man, I'm trying and I'm trying. My flesh wants to fight against me. Who shall save me from this? And then he says, ah, Jesus. Because there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Man, that's good, right? And we're talking about Paul. We're talking about Paul. I want you to go through and try to figure out how many, how many letters, and I, I could tell you, but I want you to go find out how many letters and books Paul wrote, wrote in your Bible, inspired by the Spirit. That dude didn't get it right all the time. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't sit on his pity whatever over here. <laughs> I'm not sure what I almost said, but he didn't sit on that. <laughs> he said, Jesus is enough. Can I tell you Jesus is enough, Pastor Leonard? And she knew, this woman knew that Jesus wasn't enough. Or Jesus was enough. But let me tell you about her story. She was a Syrophoenician woman. She was, she was a Samaritan. So she wasn't just bad. She was the worst of the worst. Let me explain to you why. There was a place in 1 Kings chapter 12. It's actually where our uh, philosophy of ministry comes from. Love them, serve them, speak kindly to them. Where Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the sons of Solomon, argue, get in a fight, and at that time the northern kingdom separates itself from the southern kingdom, and Israel becomes essentially two different kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which is the, ends up being part of the Samaritan region, starts worshiping idols. They no longer go to temple in Jerusalem because they don't want to come into the southern kingdom. They intermarry with the Syrians, which is a direct contradiction of the word of God because whoever you married to will be the anchor in your life. Whoever you attach yourself to, that's not just a word for marriage, that's a word for relationships. Whoever you attach yourself to, you will become. And so they attached themselves to the Assyrians through marriage, started worshiping the gods that they started worshiping, which means they turned their back on God, and then they consistently were a thorn in the side of the southern kingdom in their return from Babylon back to Jerusalem. 
They had all the historic reasons in the world the Jews did to hate the Samaritans. Not just dislike them, but hate them. Which is why I think Jesus says what he says. Because they were the worst of the worst. Jesus says this, let the children be satisfied first. For it's not good that these children's, to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Because that's what the Jews thought of them. Jews thought they were dogs, treated them like dogs. If you'll do a little, just a little Google search on the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans, man, you're going to find some, some, some crazy, awesome stuff, man. It'll give you, keep your head spinning. They didn't like each other. But Jesus didn't care about that. He doesn't condemn the faith-filled seeker. He didn't condemn this woman, and he ain't condemning you. But he will test your faith. The text says this, let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. If you, like there's probably a hundred books out there titled something along the lines of the hard sayings of Jesus. And you're going to find a bunch of stuff in there and people try to explain what those hard statements mean. Almost every one of those books, you're going to find this statement because it seems so harsh. And taking at face value, it is harsh. Like for God to say, I'm not giving you that. Jesus, who came to be the salvation of the world, looks at you and says, you ain't good enough. That sounds harsh, right? What was he doing? He was testing her faith. He was using a demonstration, an illustration, to see what her faith looked like. Maybe the situation we're going through is God testing our faith to see if we'll stand in faithfulness and still seek Him the way that we should. Man, that's something the church ought to get a hold of too. We're all, man, God must not like me, man. I'm going through such and such. Maybe God really likes you and is putting you through such and such so He can use you to your full potential, to His own glory. Man, but you don't know what I'm going through. I don't know what you're going through. But God does. And while you were still sinners, He sent Jesus to prove His love to you. But we have to acknowledge that He's testing our faith. And she did that. She answered and said to Him, Yes. Yeah, you're right. I am a dog. I know who I am. I know I'm not worthy to come here. This is the position we should take any time we come to the throne room of God. I know I'm not worthy to be here, but I'm not standing on my own authority. I'm standing on that which Jesus Christ died to give me. That's why it says walk confidently. It doesn't say walk arrogantly. It's just I know who I am. And because I know who I am, I know that I can come to you expecting to receive. It's good preaching right here. And so, so she says this. She says, yes. Um, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. She said, I acknowledge I'm not good enough. But you know what? Romans 3, 10 says none of us are good enough. None are righteous. No, not one. The Bible says, in Romans 5, 7, Jesus didn't come to die for the righteous. 
He came for those that think themselves good. Because nobody's good. Amen? So we must submit ourselves to the understanding that Jesus rewards the faith-filled seeker and expect in faith that Jesus is capable and desires to meet our need. And then this happens. The third point I would make, Jesus shows himself faithful. In the last two verses it says, And he said to her, Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying in the bed, the demon having left. Doesn't say she stayed and bartered with Jesus. Doesn't say she continued to beg and plead for that which Jesus already said she had possession of. She left. Jesus said, go, because of your declaration of faith, because you were willing to come to me and even be confident enough to denounce the thing that I was saying to you in faith, I'm going to give you what you've asked for. So I tell you, man, when your world's turned inside out, you say, yes, Lord, I, I don't deserve this thing that I'm asking for. But I know who you are. I know you're capable. I know you're faithful. I know you love me. I know this. And I'll make this declaration. Oh, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. For you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. That's Isaiah 25.1. And that's the truth. If you're waiting for God to show himself faithful, let me tell you, he will. This is, this is the text I want you to walk away with. Deuteronomy 31.8. Hold on to this truth. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not feel, fail you or forsake you. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Because Jesus rewards the faithful. Amen.